I'm just kidding. But we are going to begin today uh, a three-part sermon series called Faith in Politics. Just kind of a straightforward, uh, simple, non-controversial subject for a couple of weeks. Um, which is to say that I, I think we ought to be praying for each other, and not just your, your preachers during this time, but uh, one another and for our nation as we uh, approach in several weeks um, a very... Uh, divisive election, and, and the purpose of this series is really not to get into all of the issues and uh, the items of debate, but, but to lay a, a foundation for what does it mean to be a Christian, uh, how, and how do we engage in a healthy and faithful way um, our political world and, uh, and our political environment. I want to begin by mentioning something that was, that's important to me. When I was candidating for this um, position to serve as, as your pastor, uh, several people uh, used a phrase to describe the church that I had not heard before um, related to, to this, and it was described to me uh, several times as a purple church. I had never heard of this phrase until then, so I was, first was kind of looking around like uh, for a purple wall or something. Um, but then I, you know, I came to realize that what that meant was that, um, that we are a church of liberals and conservatives worshiping together, Democrats and Republicans. And we hold up this value so as to say that um, this is part of our, our witness. We, we might not have a, a whole lot of racial ethnic diversity, but we have diversity around our, our um, political ideologies and our commitments around that. And, uh, and it's important to us that we find our unity, not in unanimity, but in our common faith in Jesus Christ, which is a much, much deeper form of unity. There are many, many churches, Presbyterian and otherwise, that are sort of 90% on the right or 90% on the left, and I think they're, they're missing out on, on their witness to the world. Um, in, in that way. I think we uh, have the opportunity to offer um, a witness that looks very different than the polarization of our world, and that's part of who we are um, as a value. And so, um, I, I, so that's just kind of headline news. Um, our desire, of course, is to be passionate followers of Jesus Christ. And, and how do we do that? That's what we're going to kind of explore a little bit. And I want to begin, today we're just kind of laying a foundation of church-state relationships. Next week we'll get in a little bit more into the difference between being political and partisan. But we're going to start with uh, this text. It's a pretty well-known text in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 22, um, where, where Jesus is asked whether or not he should pay taxes. Um, and so this is a, a, an important text, a wonderful text for us to begin with uh, for this series. So let's take a look at our text for today, Matthew chapter 22. Verses 15 through 22. Listen to the word of the Lord. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. 
Then he said to them, Whose head is this? And whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious God, we uh, pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning, even in the deepest and most protected corners of our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear your word, for my words are limited, and so we need the voice of your Spirit to illuminate the text for us and to know your truth. So we pray that you will send your Spirit and that in hearing your word, we may respond with lives of faith and trust. For we pray it in the name of the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the question for the day, uh, the title of the sermon is, Was Jesus Political? Was Jesus political? This is an important question for us to ask, of course, if we're going to think about how we are political or not. We've got to look at, was Jesus political? And, and I'm going to just put my cards out on the table and, and say that the answer, of course, is yes. Jesus was political, and it would probably be difficult to find a case, to, to make a case um, otherwise. And so I want to explore that a little bit and kind of make my case for why Jesus was political. Um, and first we have to ask, what do we mean by politics, right? What do we mean by politics? So here's a definition from Wikipedia. Um, poli politics comes from the Greek word politika, which simply means the affairs of the city. Polis is the city, and so politika is the affairs of the city, the set of activities that are associated with making decisions in groups or other forms of power relations between individuals, such as the distribution of resources or status. Um, politics is really about the art of ordering human community. Uh, it is about how we make social agreements to live together, to live with one another in community. And if we don't think that Jesus' message pertained to concern about social life and community life, then we've been reading him wrong. Because Jesus' message is not only about private, personal spirituality and piety of individuals, although it does include that, it also has to do with social ethics, about a world that God desires and longs for and the ordering of all things. Remember Jesus' first sermon, his very first sermon was from Isaiah 61, and he was in the synagogue. And he stands up and he opens the scroll and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, and to release for release to the captives. This is political stuff, right? Release to the captives. Good news to the poor. We can't just chalk this off as metaphor. Jesus longs for this. It's about social ethics. And remember, Jesus announced, he came announcing the kingdom of heaven. And he came to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. A kingdom is a political entity. And of course, he is the king of this kingdom, um, a, a ruler. It's about how we live together. Jesus also taught a prayer to his disciples where he said, 
he said, um, your will on er be on earth as it is in heaven. And so we are about the values of heaven, but we're called to bring these values to earth and to our social relationships. So was Jesus political? Okay, yeah, yes, he was. But a deeper question then is, well, how was Jesus political? That's the real question. How was Jesus political? And what bearing does that have on us as followers of Jesus as we exercise our own political opinions and our own civic life? And so let's begin by looking at the story of Jesus' view on taxes. Jesus' view on taxes. And of course, this this text has often been used at a very surface level to simply affirm the separation of church and state. If you've, if you've heard this before, maybe you've heard, about, heard it in this way. So um, Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God's what is God's. So um, I have my civic life over here and my political life over here that kind of belongs to Caesar. And then I have my, my religious life and my faith in God over here, and that's where I belong, that belongs to God, and let's just keep these two things separate. Okay, well, that's sort of part of what's going on here, but uh, it's not quite deep enough. It's much more complex than that. And it begins with um, these two groups, these, the Pharisees and the Herodians trying to set a trap on Jesus, and they, and, and they do that together, but it's important to know um, that these two groups are like political enemies. They're kind of like, uh, we don't want to make too much of this comparison, but they're kind of like Republicans and Democrats um, coming together in their common agreement that they should kill Jesus. So it'd be like, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell are like, we actually agree on something that, um, that, that we got to get rid of this guy. And so they come here to try to trap Jesus, and they're in the temple. This is the last week of Jesus' life. And so they're, they're in the temple. Jesus had been teaching and, and ministering. And, um, of course, the temple, you know, is, is a sacred space. And part of the idea of the temple is, to, is, to, is for ritual purification. And you want to kind of keep the outside influences of Rome outside of the, away from the temple as much as possible. But let's look at these two groups and who they are. First, there's the Herodians. We don't know much about the Herodians. We only read about them in the New Testament. But we infer by their name that they were supporters of Herod. So the Herodians were in favor of Herod. Well, who was Herod? You remember 10 chapters earlier in the Gospel of, of Matthew when Jesus was born and, and uh, the Magi um, were were following this light to go and, and give their royal gifts to this new newborn king, right? That's political stuff going on, and King Herod is very threatened by this, of course, and so he puts out um, a, a decree to have all the male infants uh, killed uh, out, of, out of his fear of this, of this Jesus. And so who was Herod? Well, Herod was a Jewish king, but he wasn't a faithful Jew. He was installed by Rome so that Rome could allow the Jewish people to sort of practice their religious life and Herod can rebuild the temple, but that Rome could also exercise control because Herod worked for Rome, but he was kind of, so he was essentially a compromiser, right? He was a compromiser. And the Herodians were essentially compromisers in the sense of they, their idea was we need to play ball with Rome. Rome's here 
for good, and so or at least for now. And so um, you know we got to kind of work with Rome and be politically savvy and kind of compromise some of our our big religious commitments in order to kind of keep the peace and to and to you know um, keep keep us all kind of working together. But the Pharisees, of course, were like the opposite of of the Herodians. Um, they they did not want anything to be defiled. They were very much interested in purity, um, and, uh, and so they didn't want to have anything to do with compromising uh, with Herod. And this sets up the question that they intend to use to trap Jesus. We've heard it before, they say, and, and they kind of use um, this one nice little flattery to try to bait Jesus. They say, oh, you're a pious man. You know, you follow the law. And you sort of hear echoes of the wilderness, right? You, 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 can, you can almost feel like the serpent trying to, to try to flatter or bait Jesus um, and, and hear what the Pharisees doing this to them. And then they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And in this question, they're giving him a no-win situation. It's sort of a trap, a catch-22, if you will, right? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? If you say yes, well, then you're going to be incredibly unpopular with the people. The, the Jewish people are not going to like that compromise, and um, you're, not, you're going to lose your ministry if you say yes. But if you say no, well, then you're in, then you're in hot water with the Romans, and you're likely going to be killed very, very soon. So what do you say, Jesus? Is it yes or no? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, there's a lot going on underneath this question. First of all, um, why was this tax so unpopular? This was a very unpopular tax. Basically, it was a poll tax that, that they all had to, everyone had to pay the same amount every year. And so remember when Quirinius um, put out the census and everyone had to return to their hometowns in order to be registered. It was also to pay the poll tax. And nobody liked this tax. It wasn't a ton of money, but it was a decent amount of money. Uh, and, but what they really didn't like about it was that the fact that they had to pay it was a kind of tacit acceptance of the legitimacy of Roman rule and Roman sovereignty. It was a way of legitimizing Caesar and his rule, and admitting that if you pay the tax. And so these are the possibilities in answering this one question that the Pharisees and the Herodians used to trap Jesus. Now there are two other political groups in that known world at the time that aren't here in the text, but they're kind of in the background a little bit. You have uh, the Essenes, who um, the Essenes were, were those who wanted to have zero political engagement, zero uh, interaction with the state. Um, there was no way to remain pure and engage the state at all, and so they went off into the desert and lived in the, what was known as the Qumran community, in the caves, and that's where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And their idea was that in order to remain pure, we have to completely separate and have no interaction. And then there, on the opposite end of that were the Zealots that kind of came, that kind of arose out of the Judas the Galilean and the Maccabean Revolt and all of that. And, and the Zealots were the opposite. Their desire was to overthrow Rome with violence and to install a theocracy so that all the people in, uh, in the known world would be um, guided by religious law and would have to obey God, and, and that one religion would be the, um, the religion of the state. And it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't 
um, have an interest in joining any of these parties completely, right? Um, he's not interested in these extreme appro approaches. And so his response is definitely clever, but it's not all that really neat and clean so as to say, well, this is just about the separation of church and state. I have my tax civic life over here, my religious life over here. Um, that's not really what Jesus was saying. So he answers it, of course, this way. He says, give me, give me one of those coins. Give me one of these coins. And this is wonderful insight right here. Remember, they're in the temple, a holy place. And who's carrying this coin and who's not carrying the coin? Jesus doesn't have the coin. He's not complicit. But already the ones who are testing him are the ones who have the coin in their pockets. So Jesus says, give me this coin. He gives him the coin. It's a denarius. Denarius was the, was the coin that they had used to pay the, the tax. And here's a picture of a first century denarius. This was from the British Museum. Uh, stamped right on the front there is an image of Tiberius Caesar. And then there's an inscription around there that, that says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Right? So here is an image of a, of a person with a claim of divinity, son of God. Whose image is on this coin, Jesus says. And here it is, it's Tiberius Caesar. Uh, and, and so what Jesus is doing is that he's pointing out the hypocrisy of those who are asking the question. Because first of all, there's, there's an image, right? And what does that make us think of? The Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Well, here's a graven image. And then the, the next commandment, you shall have no gods before me. Here's an inscription. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Um, and so here's this sort of piece of coinage that is like an idol. Uh, and it's in their pockets. They're trading Caesar's coin. They're spending it. They're accumulating it. They're benefiting from Caesar's world. They're already in the business of legitimizing Caesar's world. And he's there pointing out this unholy agenda to, to trap them, to trap him. But notice in answering the question this way, Jesus is, is really raising another question. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God's, give to God what is God's. Begs the question, well, what is Caesar's? What belongs to Caesar? Is there something legitimately that, that Caesar has control of? Well, this coin belongs to Caesar. Caesar has uh, a limited sovereignty. The state has a limited sovereignty. If we're benefiting from it, then pay the tax, essentially. Um, it, and of course, the next statement, render to God what is God's, well, what, what belongs to God? Okay, this coin that has Caesar's image stamped on it belongs to Caesar. Well, what is God's image stamped on? God's image is stamped on you, and you, and you, and me, and the Pharisees, and the Herodians. God's image is stamped on you. And so give the coin, go ahead and pay the tax but your, your whole life, your ultimate uh, allegiance is to God, who has ultimate sovereignty. Let's explore a little bit. For, so now we kind of get a sense. A, a, another way of saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's, is, is another way of saying, 
go ahead and pay the tax. You're benefiting from this system. But understand that there is a Lord and a God who is over all. And that is the one to whom you truly and most deeply belong. So what is the right relationship then between church and state? It's a very complicated and important question. Uh, scores of books have been written about this relationship between the church and state. And so let's just take a very cursory look at the subject um, by taking a quick survey of both what our Christian tradition through the scriptures says, as well as what the American Constitution has to say about this. So let's start with the Judeo-Christian tradition. The Bible describes dozens of fascinating interactions between people of God and political figures. You remember Moses goes up to his old friend Pharaoh and says, God commands you to let my people go. Remember Nathan, who was a priest and a prophet, he calls out King David for committing both adultery and murder, speaking truth to power. Esther prepares a fabulous dinner for King Ahasuerus and convinces him to, to save all the Jews in Persia from extermination. The prophet Jeremiah declares God's judgment against the government of his time. John the Baptist criticizes King Herod's philandering ways. As a thank you, King Herod has uh, John the Baptist beheaded. Jesus speaks with Pontius Pilate about the nature of truth. And when the conversation is finished, Pilate has Jesus crucified uh, and tortured to death. Remember, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, under the governor. Of course, in the book of Romans, in chapter 13, Paul argues that it's the Christian's obligation to obey our earthly rulers. Paul claims that civil rulers are put into place, into their leadership positions by God. And then you look at the book of Revelation, and it comes to seemingly the opposite conclusion. It argues that some of the earthly rulers are actually more like minions of the devil than they are servants of God. What do we do with the diversity of perspectives on the relationship between the church and the government in our scriptures? What do we do with this diversity of perspectives? Uh, well, first, I think we should be honest that the Bible doesn't give us a clear, cut and dry approach to this. I wish it did. It would be a lot easier to give this sermon. At times, the Bible describes people of faith as, as dutiful citizens obeying people trying to be loyal subjects of God's sponsored rule of the state. At other times, the Bible describes people of faith as devout critics of the corrupt governments. And these individuals are often persecuted uh, for speaking out against the state. The question is, can we find some guidance amid the diversity in Scripture? And I think that we can. In fact, the diversity of perspectives itself is a kind of guidance for us. When you think about it, it makes sense that the interactions between people of faith and the state vary according to what's going on at the time. They vary according to the historical context and what people were experiencing at the time um, and the individuals involved. In other words, our role as the church in the world is to study our 
Christian tradition as seen in Scripture and throughout history and to study what's going on in our world and in prayerful discernment and in conversation discern what is the most faithful path forward. And it could look different at different times in history. In 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was Lutheran pastor and theologian, and he was arrested by the Gestapo in Germany for his staunch and vocal opposition to Hitler's regime and his genocidal persecution of European Jews. Bonhoeffer was declared an enemy of the state. Eventually, he was transferred from prison to the concentration camp at Flossenburg. And then in April of 1945, German police discovered Bonhoeffer's name in the diary of Hans von Donanyi, a man who participated in this plot to assassinate Hitler. And Bonhoeffer's name was in this diary and, and was in conversation about this plot to assassinate Hitler. And on learning this, Hitler ordered Bonhoeffer and all of those who were mentioned in this diary to be killed. And so Bonhoeffer was hanged uh, two weeks before American forces came in and liberated the camp. Can you imagine that? Two weeks. Can you imagine if this world had 40 more years of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? An amazing thing. But to many, Bonhoeffer's a modern saint. He's a, he's a martyr who paid the ultimate price for his faith. He spoke out against the evils of national socialism. He associated with people who were working to destabilize the government of his time and plotting to kill Germany's political hit, uh, leader. Isn't that interesting? Because Bonhoeffer was also an avowed pacifist. And he struggled mightily with these decisions. In prison, he wrote that he didn't consider himself to be an innocent man. Bonhoeffer also felt that he made the only faithful choice available to him in terms of opposing the evils of the Nazi state. Some of humanity's most beloved heroes are martyrs like Bonhoeffer, like, uh, like Martin Luther King Jr., people whose faith encouraged them to speak out against a state's tyranny and corruption. But one of the brilliant and I think hopeful things about America, about this nation, is that our Constitution provides protections for this sort of engagement and this sort of speech. When the framers sat down with the Constitution, they were keenly aware that many people, many of the people who moved to America were fleeing religious persecution from their homeland countries. And so the framers provided protection for the free exercise of religion in our establishing documents. But to be clear, the phrase or the words separation of church and state are not actually in the Constitution. They don't occur in the Constitution. They came in a letter that was written later in 1802 by Thomas Jefferson to a group, an association of Baptist ministers in Danbury, Connecticut. And this is in this letter, Jefferson assures these pastors that the newly formed United States would be different, less controlling, less oppressive than the European countries that many of them fled. He promises that government will not undertake to tell people what religion they should or should not exercise. 
And so we have the establishment and the free exercise clauses of the Constitution that explain this and explicitly address these concerns. They, what they do is that they prevent the government from trying to control people's faith. They prohibit the government from establishing any religion as the official religion of the land. And they safeguard people's free exercise uh, of religion, of faith, or to have no faith at all. In all of this, the Constitution doesn't try to muzzle people of faith or religious communities when it comes to participating in public discourse. On the contrary, the Constitution protects the rights of the faithful to speak out. Doesn't this seem wise on so many levels? Because the important issues, the topics of concern regarding the direction of, of our country are never simply political, are they? Our hot-button issues have, have ethical, spiritual, economic, medical ramifications. If we're to make progress in dealing with the most conflicted and challenging issues faith, facing our country, we need all of these perspectives, especially the perspectives of the faithful at the table. So I want to just conclude with, um, with just a recommendation about how we talk with one another during these couple of weeks leading up to the election and beyond um, around controversial issues. I hope that we uh, engage in loving Christian dialogue with one another in, in um, hopeful and, and civil ways in small groups or in conversation. But uh, I suggest that we would strive to shape our thinking and praying and debating according to the virtue of humility. Because this is something that obviously the Pharisees and the Herodians were very much lacking in their attack of Jesus, which he simply um, draws out their lack of humility. But it's also um, what is, is a virtue that seems to be lacking the most in our public discourse, in our in our uh, public life. Humility requires setting aside the almighty ego, the conviction that we know all, that our gut is always right, that our anger is pure, and that those who we disagree with are either evil or stupid. Humility doesn't ask us to become an unopinionated worm. On the contrary, it's the virtue that would have us work really hard reading and studying and praying about an issue because we do not assume that our first knee-jerk opinion about an issue represents the truth. We cannot form our opinions of deep, complex issues by a tweet. It just doesn't suffice. And so humility is decentering. It respects the other as much as the self. It acknowledges that complex issues are complex for a reason. Easy answers are incomplete answers. Humility is the willingness to listen. Humility searches other people's opinions, even those we disagree with, for kernels of truth to find common ground. And that's how we relate to one another within the body of Christ, especially if we want to continue worshiping together through these polarizing times. That is a value we ought to uphold. Humility is something we see in the person of Christ. The little light that the Magi followed, that they bowed down before and knelt before, 
is the incarnate word who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. May we do likewise. Let us pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for uh, giving us faith, and we thank you that we owe our allegiance to you and to you alone. We also pray that you will help us to be responsible citizens. You've not called us to be like the Essenes and to separate from the polis, from the city. You've not called us to overthrow with violence, but you've called us to a different kind of kingdom where we shape a world with virtue, with what we read about in the Sermon on the Mount. And may that guide how we approach the election, our studying of the issues, and our voting. Help us to be engaged citizens, but citizens who serve um, at the privilege of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.